Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul, and the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. I thought, what a better introduction than the Bible Project. By the way, again, just to remind you, this is something you can access. It's called the Bible Project. Go online, and uh, it's, just, it's just really good. And hopefully you're continuing your reading in, in 1 Thessalonians. As I've told you, just continue reading First and Second Thessalonians, and maybe not every day, uh, but um, uh, I think you'll find that uh, you'll continue to, to, to get new insights as you do that. Um, if, if you remember uh, back, by the way, open your Bibles, if you would. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Um, if you remember the introduction, uh, when I encouraged you to begin reading Thessalonians, there were three things that I asked you to kind of keep an eye out for. I don't, so I probably don't remember those, so let me just repeat them. Uh, there were three, three questions that, uh, 
that I, that I said for you to be aware of or to look for while you read. The first one is, is there an objection that Paul is addressing? In other words, what objection is Paul addressing? Okay. Number two is, is there an accusation that Paul is defending? Is there an accusation that Paul is defending? So what objection is Paul addressing, or is there an objection that he's addressing? Is there an accusation that he is defending? And number three is, what behavior is Paul correcting? So those three things I asked you to kind of keep an eye out for as you read 1 Thessalonians. Now, a lot of times it's not obvious. You, you kind of have to, kind of have to, to, to read behind the, the, the message, if you will. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapters two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And from my reading of it, my studying of it, 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 he is really, it's number two. There is an accusation that he is defending. And in fact, let me just state what I think it is and then hopefully prove it as, as we read through the text. That Paul is defending himself against a charge that he appeared in Thessalonica out of, out of greed and egotism. In other words, that he came there for his own benefit and, and to, to, to receive um, uh, money and he was greedy and it was all about him. And number two, uh, that really goes along with that, is that he, he really lacked genuine love and concern for them. And, and that is probably seen by the fact that um, whoever these people were, uh, look, he left. He took off. He left you guys. And he's going to address this again in chapter 3. Um, but in, ch- in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, I think we're going to see that Paul is defending himself against really two accusations. One, about his motive for ministry. And number two is his method or his manner of ministry. Um, and uh, so that's what I want us to look at this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Uh, the first uh, defense that Paul uh, musters is a defense of his motive. The, the charge was that his motive for ministry was self-centered. It was for, it was for his own ego, and, and it w- he did it out of greed. And so really, if you look at these verses, that's exactly what he seems to be addressing. Uh, look, look with me again at verses 1 through 4. But how does he start, how does he address them? Verse 1. What does he say? Brothers and sisters, what does he say? You know. In fact, it's emphatic. You, yourselves, you know. (laughs) In fact, we see this throughout this letter. Uh, Let's let's look at this. Verse 1, you yourselves know that are coming to you. Uh, Look with me at verse um, uh, 9. For you recall... Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, 
just as you know. Uh, throughout this text, he is reminding them of what he is appealing to what they already knew. You guys know. Here's my own. Here's my paraphrase. You know better. You know better. You know what happened when I came to you. And he's going to outline that. So he appeals, first of all, he appeals to what they already knew in, in, in their knowledge and their experience of Paul's ministry among them. And he goes on to say, after uh, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, it had real results. And we read about those results in chapter 1. And we just saw it on the, the introduction again here. What were some of the results? Or what was the main result? They did what? They turned to God from idols. And as we talked about that, and, and they, I like the introduction, their culture was permeated with idols, household idols, idols in the workplace, idols in the, in the, the, the culture and the state. The air, idols were everywhere. And to reject idols was really to reject Family, work, um, everything. He says, you know about us that, our, that when we came among you, something happened. Something dramatic happened. You turned from idols, from false idols, from false gods to serve the living and true God. And then number two, verse two, he says, and after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. Now, anybody remember what happened to them in Philippi? Acts 16, they were traveling along and there was a slave, remember the slave girl? And kept following behind him and Paul finally got ticked off and exercised the demon. <laughs> and, and what did the owner say? She was a slave girl. What did the owner say? Eh, we're going to lose revenue. And they had him dragged before the city council and they were flogged. In fact, the word... Some of our translations bring out this word mistreated. They were shamefully mistreated. The, 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 the notion is they were illegally and shamefully mistreated. Because as Romans, as Roman citizens, what were they, re, what were they required to do? Due process. And they didn't do due process. Didn't do process in Jerusalem. Didn't do due process in Philippi. And so why would this be important? In fact, he goes on to say, we had been after we had been after all that we had, you know that we experienced in Philippi. He says, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, amongst or amid much opposition. So, what what is he addressing here? He's addressing this notion that he's in it just for him. What it basically is his argument? Let me tell you what's in it for me. Beatings floggings and imprisonment. If I was in, here's what I think. If, if this is all about me, the last thing I would have done is come to you and start preaching the gospel after what happened to me in Philippi. His argument is, listen, you know that what happened to me in Philippi, and in fact, you know what happened to me in, Thess in your own town. And he said, we had boldness in our God to speak to you, and here's why they were suffering persecution. What was, it? what was the reason? The gospel of God. Because of the gospel of God. We came to you not for preaching ourselves, but preaching the gospel of God. Now, this is what we call a what? Gospel of God, grammatically. 
It's a genitive. Okay? Now, again, we're going to do grammar again, so I know your eyes are going to start rolling back up in your heads. A genitive construction is X of Y. Gospel of God. And this is a, this is a grammatical feature that, that demonstrates or reveals some kind of relationship. So what does he mean, the gospel of God? It could be probably one of two things. Is it the gospel that is about God? Or is it the gospel that has come from God? It could be either one. I want to encourage you, as you read your Bible, to look for these genitives. Now, in the NIV, you have less of them because they, they, they interpret the genitives for you in most cases. That's why, for your study purposes, I recommend like a New American Standard or an English Standard version so you, you can make those interpretive decisions yourself. That's one of the limitations of an NIV. There's a lot of pros, but one of the limitations is it reduces the number of interpretive options for you. They interpret that for you. So, you have to. is he saying that it was because of the gospel that God gave us that we faced opposition? Or was it the gospel about him? Well, this might be one of those cases that's what's called a plenary gem. Maybe it's both. Because the gospel that he gave us is a gospel about him. It's both. He said, this is why we face the opposition that we faced. The, the, the gospel of God. In fact, we see this in chapter 2. We see it in verse 8 and we see it in verse 9. He was saying, well, I'm not here for myself. I'm here. I came. And everywhere I go is for one and one purpose only, and that is to preach the gospel. It's not about me. In fact, keep your marker here and turn to 2 Corinthians 4. He told the Corinthians this as well in a different way. His ministry was, in other words, he was saying, my ministry is not self-centered, it's God-centered. And you know this. He keeps bringing them back to that. You know this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, he's saying we didn't come playing games. We didn't come uh, promoting ourselves. We came to promote the gospel. We came to promote, in fact, God. So the first defense that he he musters is this whole issue is that it was all about him. He came in a very self-centered way. He was being egotistical and it was for his own glory. And he's saying, listen, if I was in this for my glory, the last thing I'd be doing is preaching the gospel. Because what has the gospel, preaching the gospel gotten him? Yeah. He says, he basically defends this notion that he, he was doing it for his own purposes. But in verse 5, he addresses the whole issue of greed. He says, um, for we never came... Um, I'm sorry, back to verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So now he's going he's to be talking about this notion of greed, that he is doing this only to get money. Now this was very common. By the way, the, uh, you know, the televangelists that we see on TV, that's nothing new. We've, the church has always had them. The only reason we know more about them is because of our technology. They had the same thing in Paul's day. 
they had they had all kinds of philosophers and, and pagan uh, pagan from pagan religions traveling around the country, itinerant preachers, and and this was common in Paul's day. Paul, this was not unusual. What Paul was doing was not unusual. They would see people come into their cities all the time, and and they would do one thing and one thing only, and that was to please people. And why would they want to please people? You can do this for money. This was not. This was this was very common in Paul's day. And this, by the way, was a common thing he had to defend himself against. I'm not just like one of these guys that's coming into town to fleece you and then leave. And that's exactly what people were saying. He came into town, he fleeced you, and then he left. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is his defense against that. He's saying, I I didn't do that. Uh, I've been approved by God. God has approved my ministry. In other words, he's saying, who do I answer to? He said, I answer to God himself. We, we, We speak not pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Yeah, now, uh, let, let me just say as an aside, um, and I don't want to appear to be overly critical, but this is a problem I see in the pulpit today. It is, is a motive of pleasing people. And, and let me just tell you what I mean by that. I'm not talking about... Obviously, we, we know there's false teaching from the pulpit. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when, when a pastor... Uh, interprets a text and and in his conscience believes that the text is teaching something that he knows his congregation is not going to like for whatever reason because of their tradition because of their background because of you know what their great granddaddy taught they, they you know as a, I know as a preacher what's going to be hard preaching for you I know what's going to be hard for you to swallow and choke down not this church so much, but I've been in church. I, you kind of know, as a pastor and as a preacher, you kind of know where your church is, what their backgrounds are, um, and, and you know what's going to be difficult for them. At, at that point, uh, oftentimes preachers back off from the text. Maybe they don't really preach the text as their conscience, as their study has, has, has led them to, but they back off. Because they don't want anybody to be offended. Or, or they don't want to step on anybody's toes. Now again, I'm not talking about intentionally using the pulpit as a bully pulpit. I'm not talking about you know, uh, using the sermon to, to try to force, uh, you know, you have your hobby horse and you're going to try to you know, force it down their throat. I'm talking about just what you really in your conscience believe the text teaches, what the text is saying, that... that you know it's going to be misunderstood. You know that there's probably going to be some uh, some opposition, some pushback, and so oftentimes, so many preachers they back off and, and they preach some they, they preach what they know their congregation will like. It, it, not that it's false, not that it's false teaching or wrong teaching, but it's it, it is pleasing people. And Paul said, "I never did that." I, what kind of gospel did Paul preach? Did he say, "You know what"? If you, if you trust Christ, you'll experience true fulfillment in life and you can, you can achieve your dream destiny. Is that what he preached? That's what people want to hear. People want to hear that Jesus is going to make my life better. He's going to, he's going to bring meaning and purpose to my life. People want to hear that. And that's certainly true. But what, what, did, what did Paul preach? We went through the book of Acts, you know. What did he preach? 
Yeah, he said, we preach what? Christ crucified. And what did he say? It's a stumbling block. Is it a stumbling block to Jews and offense to Gentiles? One of the, one of the two. They didn't want to hear that. He said, I preached it anyway. Because I, was, I'm not, I don't do this. And my ministry is not about pleasing people. It's about pleasing God. Now, again, let me say this. On the other hand, there are some pastors who use that as an excuse to be boorish, tactless, offensive, <laughs> um, all those kinds of things. Well, I've experienced that myself, so I understand that. And they use this verse. I'm only pleasing God, not pleasing you, so now I'm going tr- to abuse you and mistreat you. That, that's, you well, you're going to see this. It's certainly not what Paul did in Thessalonica. But he affirms his approach. He says, we never came to you, verse 5, with flattering speech, nor as a pretext for greed. He said, I, I didn't come here. I'm not like one of these other guys. He said, God is my witness. He said, nor did we seek glory or praise from men, either from you or from others. And then he says, even though as apostles, we could have asserted our authority. He's talking about his, the fact that he could have been much more forceful. He could have asserted his authority as an apostle, but he didn't. So, he defends his motive for ministry. His motive was not self-centered. It was God-centered. His motive was not greed. He said, in fact, <laughs> uh, or we're going to see later on, he said, in fact, I, I got a job to pay my bills. So his first defense was for his motive. He's answering, and we don't know who it was. It probably was not the church in Thessalonica who was charging him with these things. But if you, if you remember back in, in Acts 17, and, and his ministry in Thessalonica, it was, it was the Jews and, and some of the Romans who were probably making these charges, trying to turn the church against him. And so he says, he defends his motive for ministry. He said it was not self-centered. In fact, it was God-centered. It was not for self-gain, but it was in fact to in fact, bring honor and to please the Lord, not men. That's number one. Number two is now he's going to defend or he's going to describe his manner of ministry, how he did it. So verses 1 through 6 is really what he did. And what did he do? What did he come to do? To preach the gospel of God. Not for self-gain, but to please the Lord, to be God-centered. Now he's going to talk about how he did that, the manner in which he went about that, or his method. How did he do that? Look with me at verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, Jackson, would you do me a favor? Would you open that door for me, please? As you read these, as we read this, this section, what's the tone? What's the tone? 
when you read your Bible, this is very, I understand this is somewhat subjective. What's the tone of verses 7 through 12? Very affectionate. But again, as we saw in the introduction, what are some of the metaphors? What are some of the metaphors he uses? Well, look, look with me. We prove to be gentle as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection of you. Um, verses um, 11. Just as you know, we are exhorting, encouraging, imploring as a father would his own children. As, as the introduction talk, the Bible project talked about, he uses familial metaphors. Which tells us what about the church? We're family. This is not just an organization. God expects us to be family. Why do we have church membership? It's a good way of indicating who's part of the family. Wayne and Joyce, if someone just came walking, what part of St. Louis do you live in? What's that? South County. If someone just came walking down the street, opened your door, and sat down at your dinner table and said, where's, the, where's dinner? They probably, I don't know, would they get shot? No, they probably wouldn't get shot. They might. <laughs> Chances are very good. Why don't we do that? Why don't we allow that? They're not family. Who are you? We, we have to remember that church is family. You know, one of the things we, we and the leadership team, we started this church. My, in my heart, I wanted people, if someone, I wanted them to stay here, not because of the preaching, not because of the music, not because of the nice bathrooms, not because of the programs. I want people to stay here because this, these are my, this is my family. This is my family. Yeah, it's not perfect. Whose family's perfect? We're family. And he's appealing to them. Guys, we were family. We're family. And I came to you as a, as a nursing mother, a nurturing her, her, her child. In other words, he's affirming his approach. He said, I could have wielded my authority. I could have come in and, 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 and been you know, the, 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 the talking head on the screen, and I could have wielded my authority. He said, but I didn't. I was gentle. I was caring. In fact, he says, we loved you so much, we, we didn't just share the gospel with you, but he shared what? Our very lives. Church is about sharing of lives together. It's about sharing lives. Are we perfect in that? No, but that's what we're striving for. A sharing of life. So he affirms his approach. He says... We didn't come to you um, w- w- that completely without love or concern. We, we were in intimately concerned and loved you as a parent. In fact, he says in two different occasions, we didn't want to be a burden to you. Verse seven. Look at verse 7 again. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And he says, verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. What is he talking about there? This is why I say that the impression we get from Acts is that he was only in Thessalonica for a short period of time. But I don't think that's true. I think that he was in there for a much longer time than maybe it appears because he got a job. And does anybody know what Paul did for a living? Tent maker. So, and, and we know that, that church in Philippi at least initially partially supported him while he was in Thessalonica. So maybe that was startup money. 
for him to start up his business in Thessalonica. And he says he worked what? Night and day. And we say what? Day and night. Jews counted days from night to day. We counted day and night. Now, this is significant. Does anybody know about their work habits in, in the Middle East during this, this period? They would work from early in the morning to about noon, and then that's it. Their work day was early in the morning to around noon or thereabouts. And to a large extent, a lot of times it had to do with heat. But culturally, that's what they did. Because they worked during the day, meaning early morning to about noon. What did Paul work? Around the clock, day and night. He didn't knock out, he didn't punch out at noon. He said, man, I made tents all day in order to not be a burden to you. This is, again, it, it, let me just say as editorial. Um, maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't know. I would do this for free. What I mean by that is if I had to, I'd work full time. I'm, I'm not going to be dependent. What God has called me to do, I will do, regardless of whether I receive support or not. No. Thank you for your support. He's saying, listen, I didn't want to be a burden to you. In fact, you people are saying I'm greedy. What? I I worked a full-time job in order to preach the gospel. I'm not be a burden to you. Uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians 9.18. I think this is the sense of it. I'm glad the elders aren't here to hear this. Verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Every preacher should be able to say this. I do this. I'm compelled to do this. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And he's saying, I'm not like one of these peddlers that comes into town and, and, and charges $50 for you to come, you know, for a ticket to get in the tent to come hear me preach. And I don't want to be a burden to you. So he's answering his manner of ministry. He was genuinely concerned for them. Again, listen, he said that, that we, we loved you so much that we shared with you not just the gospel, but in fact, our very lives. Um, Regis uh, gave me, um, uh, led me to this, uh, I think I sent one out to you, in fact, a devotional by a gentleman by the name of Sky Jitani. Um, and he, is, he has been going, well, he just recently been going about, talking about different kinds of idols. And I think I sent you one. I think I sent out the one to the church. But, but this is um, called the Idol of Knowledge. Demons have good doctrine. He said, In my previous role as an editor of, at Christianity Today, I had the opportunity to engage many Christian leaders and to see, quote-unquote, behind the curtain of numerous ministries. Often I came away from these encounters deeply encouraged and grateful. Sometimes I did not. Occasionally, my time with a prominent pastor would leave me utterly confused. Why do thousands of people follow this guy? I'd ask myself. He's a monster. 
when I asked the fans of these malignant, <laughs> I love his name, these malignant ministers, why they follow them, I would often hear the same defense. Well, he teaches the truth. In a culture swimming in false doctrine and harmful lies, some Christians have come to believe sound theology, often delivered with bombast, is the only real mark of godly leadership. Therefore, a minister may be full of pride, greed, or anger, and their ministry may be marked by hubris, division, and contempt for outsiders. But all of this is excused because he, he, is, a teach, he is teaching the truth. Of course, doctrine is important. And we should be wary of leaders who deviate from the teachings of Jesus. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, to keep close watch of his doctrine. But Paul didn't stop there. He also told Timothy to watch his life and to set a good example for others with his speech, behavior, love, faith, and purity. See, Paul was concerned about a leader's character, not merely their communication of doctrine. Good doctrine matters insofar as it facilitates our communion with God, which overflows into love for others. But when good doctrine, and I love this phrase, when good doctrine is disconnected from love, it makes us into devils, not disciples. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have all this other stuff, but have not love, I'm a clanging cymbal. One of the commentators I read said this, a gospel messenger who stands detached from his audience has not yet been touched by the very gospel he proclaims. Paul was not a talking head. He was not the lead teacher. He was a pastor. And he said, I lived and shared my life with you. He's appealing to them. You know how I, how I lived among you. You know that we came to you as a nurturing mother. We came to you, in fact, he says, as a father, encouraging, comforting, imploring you. We shared our lives together. And, and I've often said this about our church. One of the great things about being in a small church is there's accountability for me and for my wife. You guys, you guys see us all the time. You see, it, you see us when we blow it. When Vicki says things she shouldn't say. She's not in here so I can say that. No, you, we, we, I mean, a lot of people don't want that. A lot of pastors don't want that. Paul said, we... You know us. You know how much we loved you. We, you know how much we cared for you. You know about our genuine love and care for you. In fact, he says, um, verse 11, we were exhorting. He, he exhorted the downhearted. He encouraged the brokenhearted. And he implored the hardhearted. He said, we... You know how we were among you, exhorting, encouraging, and imploring you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk... Why? So that he would gain something from it. No, so that you'd walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He, he is reminding them that they are now in a new kingdom. Well, the question is, is this just for pastors? 
It is for pastors, but it's not just for pastors. I see two things here for all of us. Number one, I see this, this, this challenges us to be courageously and selflessly devoted to the gospel. And I'm not just talking about the four spiritual laws. I'm not, when, we, I should, when I talk about the gospel, I'm not talking about just, the, just the, the narrow message of salvation. I mean, that's part of the gospel. But so often when Christians hear gospel, that's what they think of. They think of just that, you know, just that narrow strip of how to be saved. But, but really, the Bible, the gospel is all of God's revelation. This is good news. So it's not limited just to the message of salvation. That, that we need to be courageously and selflessly devoted, first and foremost, to the truth of the Bible. That's what Paul said. He said, I endured great suffering and opposition because of the truth of God's Word. And we need to continue to be courageously and selflessly devoted to the Scriptures. That's our authority. That's where we receive comfort. That's where we receive encouragement. This is where we are implored and, and uh, exhorted is through the Scriptures. And through one another, using the Scriptures, of course. But Paul says, I came three times, Gospel of God, Gospel of God, Gospel of God. Paul was, in fact, courageously and selflessly devoted to the Gospel of God, and so must we. And I'm thankful for a church who comes with Bibles and, and opens up their Bibles and, and reads their Bibles and hopefully preach out of the Bible. We are courageously and selflessly devoted the gospel of God. In other words, number two, we are, need to be personally and passionately involved with God's people. It's not just courageously and selflessly devoted to the gospel, but, but we need to be personally and passionately involved and in caring about God's people. And Paul said, I, listen, I didn't come to you. It's not just a mere transference of truth. Ministry and being part of a church is not is not this this old endeavor here. You know, easy to be if all I do is come from from some backstage and preach preach a text and then go back and no one sees me during the week. You never see me. You never know what I'm doing. You never knew. I just it's just a mere transference of information. You know, you can you can get much better preaching uh, off the internet. You can get all kinds of information online. I'm talking about biblical information. So why do you come here? Why do we come here? Because we are personally, or we ought to be, I think we are, personally and passionately involved with God's people. Otherwise, you could just sit home in your, in your, in your uh, pajamas and live stream church, which a lot of churches are going to now. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. People are staying home and, they're, and they live stream their services and they just stay at home. They, they're, they're, they're giving this by PayPal or something. I don't know what it is. But, but they're missing the central point of, of, of really the heart of what it means to be a church. It's not just a transference. This is not just a transference of information. This is to be personally and passionately involved with the people of God, with one another. You with me and me with you. It's not just a transference of information, but it's a sharing of life. And this is what Paul appeals to them. 
So, of one of those two, to be courageously and selflessly devoted to the gospel, to be personally and passionately involved with God's people. Where, where do you think, and I'm not asking you to say it out loud, um, where do you think we need to work on? You know what? As I, as, as, let me just prejudice your, uh, your answer. As I have, from my perspective as church, I see us much like this church in Thessalonica. I, I don't think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this is not happening. I think it is. I think it's happening a lot. So what I would say to us is keep it up and let's do it even better. Let's do it even more. I do believe that we as a church are courageously and selflessly devoted to the Scriptures. I believe that. I know that. And I see and I experience that we are personally and passionately involved with one another in the, in the people of God. What I want to do is implore us, let's do it even more. And we're going to see this throughout the book of First Thessalonians. Because that's what he's saying to them. He's saying, I'm not saying you're not doing this. I'm not saying you don't love each other. I'm saying you are. But do it even more. Do it even more. So Paul, this, this text, Paul was defending an accusation that, number one, that he, that he came into town out of ego and greed, just like any other traveling huckster. And number two is he really didn't care about you because he took off and left. And Paul answers that, and he's going to answer it again in chapter 3. But he reminds them of two things. Number one, that he was selflessly and courageously devoted to the gospel of God. And number two, he says, you guys know yourselves that I was personally and passionately involved in your lives, in yours and mine. And that's what it means to be a church. Let's pray. Father.